I just don't sound that good doing it. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> By way of announcements, <laughs> uh, ladies, if you don't know by now, uh, you guys are having a uh, a thing, a ladies' retreat. <laughs> That's going to be in the Wisconsin Dells, April 22nd to 24th. Uh, if you intend on going, please let Sister DeMuth know so she can get a head count and have your room payments, if you need those in, to Sister Becker by March 1st. Men's camp again, August 19th through 21st. Uh, registration is open. Uh, everything is on a first-come, first-served basis. So if you're worried about getting that special campsite or dorm room, register today. Amen. Uh, SOC offering. <clears throat> Get all choked up. Is going to be uh, on March 14th. We're gonna we're gonna hold that offering on March 14th. And uh, SOC offering is important. Uh, it's the primary source of revenue for the General Sunday School Division. And half of those funds that are raised remain in our district uh, to help with junior camp, children's crusades, teacher training seminars. Uh, the other 50% goes to uh, headquarters Sunday School. So. Uh, that's an important offering. We're going to be taking that on March 14th. Please uh, pray about that and consider what you can and and uh, want to give. Amen. A couple of announcements, one that I forgot to make, one, fortunately, I was reminded of. Sister Sandra McGinnis is going to have a birthday tomorrow. She's very happy about that and wants everybody to know. <laughs> 27 tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, I wish too that I was looking forward to 27. Uh, and what I forgot to mention, uh, on Monday, February 15th, Brother and Sister Rapish's anniversary took place. So, happy anniversary, guys. <laughs> Hopefully you did something fun. Amen. The uh There we go. <laughs> technology has not been my friend this morning. Even though I love technology, it has become my enemy. <laughs> anyway, we'll work through it. Uh, our message today is is going to be taken. Uh, there's a character in the Bible uh, named Phinehas, and not not the Phinehas who was birthed of Eli. Uh, he's not worth much as, except for to do what not to do. But uh, the Phinehas, the grandson of, of Aaron, the son of Eleazar, we'll be talking a little bit about him this morning. And uh, he doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, press time in the Bible. Uh, he's not mentioned a whole lot, although when he is, it, it's, it's kind of central to some very important events that transpired in the in the life of the nation of Israel. And so... Although he himself didn't get a whole lot of uh, book real estate, 
I don't know how you'd say it. Not a lot of words on Finney Haas, but I think his is a life worth emulating. And you'll find that in people. Uh, there are people probably that you know that they don't flash, they don't bang, uh, there's not a lot of excitement surrounding them, but if you stop and you, and you observe their lives for just a little bit, you realize that I want to be like that too. I want those characteristics. Finney House, I think, is one of those people, so we're going to look at him for a little bit this morning. Uh, we'll start with uh, the book of Exodus. No, we won't. We'll start with the book of Numbers. <laughs> Sorry. Book of Numbers, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. And this is kind of the event that, that really turned me on to Phinehas. I like this event. I like this account. And... uh So anyway, Numbers chapter 25, starting with verse 6. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Amen. So, <clears throat> that's an interesting account. We'll look more uh, about that in a moment. Uh, if we could pray for just one more time uh, for this particular service. Ask God to have his perfect will and way here. Ask that his word would find good ground in us that our hearts have been sufficiently prepared to receive. Amen. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here. Your presence is already here. And I pray, oh God, that you would minister to your people here this morning, that you would minister to those who are joining us online. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that your spirit would go forth, that your word would go forth, that it would fix itself to us and that it would have its perfect work in our hearts and in our spirits. Help us, Lord Jesus, to give ourselves continually to you, to do the commandments of the Lord, to do the will of the Lord for our lives. I pray, Lord, above all else, that your great name, your glorious name, would be glorified in our service today. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. So the first mention of Phineas is found in the book of Exodus, which is why I wanted to start there, but I didn't. But we're going to read it now. Exodus 6.25 says, Eliezer, Aaron's son, took him one of the daughters of Putiel to wife, and she bare him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers of the Levites according to their families. So this is before Moses actually got started with uh, the miracles and the, and the plagues and all of that. Uh, we see that Phinehas was given to Eliezer. Uh, Aaron's son. Eliezer at this point is the third oldest, uh, and Phinehas is probably either a baby or very young. And so, uh, at this point, 
we have no law given. There's no priesthood established. And so uh, Eliezer is just kind of third in line to whatever Aaron's going to pass down. And uh, which in Old Testament times probably wouldn't have been too much. And so uh, just kind of uneventful, unremarkable, quite ordinary. Maybe some of us can relate. Uh, I come from a very ordinary family. I love my family, think the world of them, but I wouldn't think that they're very newsworthy, (laughs) if we can say it that way. Just ordinary people living their lives, taking care of responsibilities, uh, raising families. That's where I come from. That's probably where most of us come from. And that's all we, we get of his early childhood. The next time we read about Phinehas is in our scripture text. Numbers chapter 25. Now in this account, the children of Israel were sinning by joining themselves with the daughters of Moab. Because of that, they were joining themselves to Baal Peor, their God. And, of course, because of that, God was jealous, and he was very angry with Israel. And so he sent a plague and judgment against that sin in Israel. In this account, Moses, Aaron, and the elders of Israel were weeping and interceding before God. That's what they did. And that's what we ought to do. But in this particular case... Uh, the plague was continuing until Phinehas took a javelin and thrust through these two who were openly sitting in the congregation. And the Bible tells us that at that point the plague was stayed. More on that in a moment. Next time we read about Phinehas is in Numbers 31. The Lord commanded Moses to gather some of the nation of Israel and arm themselves for battle against the Midianites. God was wroth with Midian for what they did against his people in Numbers 25. And so Phinehas and some of the nation of Israel went to war. We read that Phinehas was those numbered among them that went out to war. The next time we see Phinehas is in Joshua 22. At the beginning of this chapter... Joshua had discharged the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and sent them back across Jordan into the land of their possession. Now, we recall earlier that Moses had given them this land with a condition. They could have this land if they promised to not inhabit the land, to not settle there until their brethren had rest and received their inheritance as well. So they were to cross over Jordan fight the battles of the Lord, and then when they had rest, then they could come back and receive their possession as well. Well, at this point in Joshua 22, that had happened. So they'd returned home to, those tribes returned home to the other side, Jordan, and they built a great altar there by the river. And when the other tribes saw it, they thought they were building this altar in rebellion against the Lord. And at this point, they were a little concerned about Rebellion against the Lord. They had a lot of experience with that by by now, and they were rather sick and tired of the the consequences. Amen. So <laughs> they they took action quick. They gathered themselves together. Phinehas and some of the uh, ten of the rulers of Israel 
went across and spoke to them. What are you doing? Are you crazy? Paraphrasing the New Living Translation. It was here that Phinehas approached them with the ten princes. They wanted to know what was going on. What's the purpose for the altar? Because if it's rebellion, we're going to deal with it. And so they explained, this isn't for rebellion. It's, It's quite the opposite. It's so that future generations don't talk to our children and say, you have no part with us because of this River Jordan separating us from you. And this kind of is going to stand as a testimony. And so when Phinehas and the, the leaders of Israel heard that, they were pleased. They declared, Phinehas declared that God was indeed with them. No trespass had been committed. Uh, lastly, in Judges 20, we hear a really weird account. <clears throat> a certain Levite went to Bethlehem, Judah, to retrieve his concubine who had ran away. Uh, so he went and he retrieved her, uh, left from Bethlehem, Judah, after several days tarrying at his father-in-law's house. Uh, he left during the evening time, so pretty quickly he had to turn off and, and find somewhere to, to sleep for the night. So he decided to turn off into a city named Gibeah, which belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. He was taken in by a certain man there. And uh, that night the men of the city gathered themselves together and forcibly demanded that uh, the man send this stranger out so that they could know him. The man refused. Uh, Instead, they sent the Levite's concubine out. And long story short, when the morning came, she was dead. So the Levite took a knife and divided her into 12 pieces and sent the pieces into all the coasts of Israel. Israel was horrified that such a thing was done and gathered themselves together against Benjamin. Now they had inquired of the Lord once. They inquired a second time, and they were still being beaten back by the Benjamites. This time, the third time, the Bible says Phinehas inquired of the Lord and asked if they should continue against Benjamin. This time the Lord said, go up. This time I'm going to deliver Benjamin into your hand. And at this point, they soundly defeated the Benjamites. So those are the accounts we read of Phinehas in in Scripture. The reason I like Phinehas so much is because of Numbers chapter 25. And that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on this morning. The zeal of Phinehas. Now, Zeal kind of gets a bad rap today, uh, at least certain kinds of zeal. Religious zeal, particularly, uh, is equated with bigotry, small-mindedness, uh, the, the cause of all the problems in the world, the wars, the famines, the, the, the misery, the suffering, all because of religious zeal and fervor and, and fanaticism. Of course, Islamic fervor is okay. Scientific fervor is okay. Uh, Socialistic fervor is okay. Uh, 
but biblical zeal is not. Now, in their defense, there are some kinds of zeal that are called religious zeal that are not okay. Okay, I would look at the Crusades and say that was not okay. I don't think God told them to do that. I don't believe that. Uh, I don't think, <laughs> anyway, I don't think God is in a lot of that. However, there is a zeal that is good and ought to be emulated by us this morning. That's the zeal we're going to talk about. And there can be a fine line between the two. And what it boils down to is we've got to understand uh, our heart, the, the source of the zeal, the attitude behind it. These things are important. They're important for everything, but they're also important, particularly this morning, in our zeal. Now, in Numbers chapter 25, uh, before that, Israel had just defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, easily and soundly. God was with them. God was fighting their battles. And because of that, they defeated these greater and mightier nations than they were. When we are in submission to the law and will of God, God fights for us. We know that. We understand that. When we're living for God, when we are in covenant relationship with him, he fights for us. And that's a good thing. God wants us to rely on him. He wants us to lean on him for strength, for guidance, and for deliverance in these situations. And the more ridiculously we're outmatched, the better the outcome is for us. Because the stronger God fights for us. And the greater the victory, the greater the miracle, and the, the, the more glory God gets. Balak, king of the Moabites, was very afraid at this point. Now, when you're right with God, when you're living for him, you live to serve him, the enemy ought to tremble at your presence. He ought to be trembling when you come into a room or into a situation, not because of you, not because of what you can do, but because the God that lives and dwells inside of you. <clears throat> when we're living for God and we're living a repented and a submitted life, the enemy ought not to see us. They ought to be seeing the blood. They ought to be seeing Jesus Christ applied to you. And because of that, there should be a, there should be a fear there and a trembling that the enemy experiences when we enter into a situation. This king Balak was afraid. They were afraid of the Israelites. They had seen what they did to Og and to Sihon. So Balak hires a man by the name of Balaam, son of Beor, to curse the Israelites so that Moab would be able to prevail against Israel. He tried several times. God wouldn't allow it. Uh, he turned every curse into a blessing because it was God's good pleasure to bless them. So, the one strategy the enemy uses against God's people is an overt attack. 
Okay? Sihon, Og, they came directly against the nation of Israel. They were arrayed themselves in battle, and they came and they fought. Okay? And this will happen to us from time to time, although it's not very effective. And it's not very effective because we can see it coming a mile away. We can see it for what it is. Okay, this is an attack. This is obviously an attack of the enemy. If someone forces something into my life, I know what that is. It's easy to spot. Now, it's not always easy to to defeat or get over. It's not always a comfortable situation. But it's easy enough to recognize what's going on. And so, because of that, it's not really that effective. Not if you're living for God. Not if you're strong. Exodus 1.12 says, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. Acts 8, 1 through 4 says, And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So these techniques don't really work that well, do they? They end up serving the Lord instead. What they meant for evil, God turns it around for good. If we look at uh, pre-Constantine Roman church versus post-Constantine, the persecutions that were suffered in the early church were horrific. If I detailed them, I'd... I'd probably have to stop the video because they were they were grotesque, they were hideous, they were monstrous. What the early church went through. But they multiplied and they grew through all of that. It was only when Christianity was the state religion and they were accepted and they everybody wanted to be a Christian. That's when things started falling apart. That's the technique that works better. Not the frontal attack. Not the, I'm going to crush you unless you renounce Jesus. Well, that's, I mean, everybody sees what that is. And I'm just going to dig my heels in and no, no, I'm not going to. But if the enemy can convince me that everything is good and everything is easy and everything is great, Eventually, what begins to happen is I let my guard down. I get relaxed. And I'm not so intent on looking for the enemy anymore. When everything was acceptable, when everybody wanted to come into the church, that's when we lost our power. That's when we lost our relationship. Balaam, realizing he can't curse Israel, knew that as long as Israel was obedient to God, God would fight for them. But if they were to forsake God and disobey him, he wouldn't. 
So we read later that Balaam gave counsel. At Balaam's counsel, Moab began to become very friendly with Israel. The frontal attack didn't work. So they became friendly with Israel. Speaking terms. Started hanging out together. Pretty soon they were hooking up with their daughters. Soon after that, they were worshiping Baal Peor. And because of that, God wasn't with them anymore. The enemy will get us to tolerate at first. Just tolerate sin and ungodliness. Just tolerate it. I know it's bad. I know it's evil. I know it's not right. But that's just the way things are today. That's just the way it is in the world today. And then after that, we start to accept it as normal. Now, I can see, I grew up in the 80s, okay? I was 12 in 1980, 22 in 1990. So my whole formative teenage adult years were in the 80s, okay? Reaganomics. He's my president. (laughs) I love Mr. Reagan. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Um, But in the 80s, it may have happened before this. It probably did, but I just started noticing it in the 80s. Uh, when homosexuality started just popping in here and there on television shows. And it wasn't, you know, you need to accept this. This is, this is the right way to live. It was just, you know, one situation, an extreme situation that, uh, yeah, okay, maybe I could see it. Maybe, you know, it, I still disagree with it, but okay. And, you know, it started popping up a little more, a little more, a little more. And today, if you preach against it, if you tell someone it's wrong, you're wrong. This is, this is right, and, and you're wrong. <clears throat> but that didn't happen overnight. That happened over a long period of time. And it's very effective. The entire nation is inundated with this now. That it's normal. That it's right. And I promise you, if it's not out there already, they're already working on bestiality, uh, child, marrying children. That's going to become normalized as well. They'll say I'm crazy. But it's it's going to happen. And then at the end of it all, he gets us to participate in it. To be easily tolerant of sin in ourselves as well as others demonstrates in us a heart far from a holy and a righteous God. God's morals, God's character does not and will not change. I don't care what the world says is right or wrong. His character will not change. And the book will not change. It is always right. It is always right. Almost the entire book of Judges details this. God hates sin as much as he loves the sinner. So we've got to be careful with this. We have to hate sin. 
And you know why? You know why God hates sin so much? Not just because it's an affront to his character, and it is. Not just because it's so opposite of who he is, and it is. But because of what it does to you. That's why he hates it so much. Because it destroys his people. It destroys those that he loves and suffered on a cross for and died for. He hates it because of what it does to us. And we ought to hate it with the same fervor and the same passion. Not just in other people, but in us too. I ought to hate it first in me. If I got a moat in my own eye, beam in my own eye. Brother Park will keep me on track here. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? I got to make sure my own house is taken care of before I can hope to help someone else. Amen. The book of Judges, they get comfortable. They get prosperous. The Lord is blessing them. Just like post-Constantine Rome. <clears throat> and they get slack. And they, they let down their guard. And they start playing with things they ought not play with. And entertaining things they ought not entertain. Pretty soon they're in its grasp. And they're bound to another deity, another God, who can't save, who can't talk. <clears throat> and so God brings them under bondage. And they start crying out. We've sinned. We're sorry. We want the easy life back. <clears throat> so God delivers them. And they're okay for the life of the judge. The judge dies. They go back to the same thing. I mean, it's it's an awful book to read. I, I, I don't like the book of Judges for that reason. I mean, it's, it's got good stuff in it. It's the Word of God. Don't not read it. But I don't like that part of it. The frontal attacks, the obvious assaults he launches against us serves only to wake us up. But the enemy doesn't want us awake. He wants us asleep. He wants us sleeping so that he can do, he can do what he wants to do. So God's fierce anger was kindled against Israel and he commanded Moses to take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. That's in 25 verse 4. <clears throat> so they proceed to do that. Moses commands the leaders, Take you every one your man, kill him. But there was a prince of the tribe of Simeon, one named Zimri. He brought a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, the congregation of all Israel, God, everybody. Brought him right out in the open. This is my girl. And then they went into a tent. It was bad enough that this was going on in Israel, that all of this was transpiring. But now you got this moron who is a leader and a prince in Israel flaunting it in front of everybody. Flaunting it. He had no shame. And 
I believe he had lost his ability to be convicted of sin. He had become so bold and so arrogant in his sin that he'd lost his fear of God. Now this is exactly our society today. There is no fear of God. Not in the United States. It's, it's, it's a punchline. It's a joke. You talk about the wrath of God, you talk about sin, and you get a kind of a patronizing snicker. You poor, you poor woman. You poor man. Still bound up in that. And when you know what we know and what they're heading towards, you want to weep. How do I get through to them? How do I make them understand? I'm not the one that's wrong. You're wrong. And if they don't change and if they don't repent, they're looking at an eternity of damnation. The society that we live in today, the enemy that is rampant in our society today has become so bold and so arrogant, so in your face. And it happened in a relatively short period of time. He ramped up pretty quick. <clears throat> there were a lot of things behind the scenes I'm sure that he had to work out. He's laying foundations as well. And he wants to build a structure as well. An edifice against God. So in this case, Phinehas immediately grabbed a javelin and went after Zimri into the tent and thrust him and the woman through. Okay, uh, first of all, I suppose I should go on record and say that's not our solution today. We don't grab a spear and run people through. Okay, got that on tape. <clears throat> Obviously, in the New Testament, we do not fight against flesh and blood, do we? No, we don't. Ours is a spiritual war. We love the people. We hate the sin. Okay, Jesus loves them. He hates their sin. Therefore, we love them. We hate their sin. Okay. So, what do we do then? Our zeal for the Lord has to be firmly fixed. Okay, obviously, we're not zealous against people. It sure seems like they're attacking us, doesn't it? It sure seems like that's my enemy. But they're not. They have no clue what's going on. I didn't have a clue what was going on before I got the Holy Ghost. I had no idea what, what all of this was. Not one clue. And even after I got in church, that there was this spiritual war going on. 
There was this enemy of my soul I had to contend with, my flesh. All of this was, I'd never had to contend with my flesh before. We were always in perfect agreement. <clears throat> there was no struggle. Plus, you want to do something? Yeah, sounds good. But now I've got the struggle going on. And so, my zeal against the things that are against God have to be firmly fixed. But they have to be fixed correctly. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11 says this, For behold, the selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This is the holy indignation and revenge that godly sorrow worketh, this zeal that we're talking about. We are sorrowful against sin because of our relationship with and our love for a holy and a righteous God. I don't hate sin in and of itself. Okay, if anything, in and of myself, I love sin. For I came to the Lord, like I said, I had no problem with my flesh. There were things I thought was wrong. I was brought up in a Lutheran home. But most of those were just suggestions. Or they applied until I was 18. And then I could, then all, all, all of these things opened up then. And so, I don't hate sin in and of itself. I hate sin because I have the Spirit of God in me. I hate sin because I love God. And because of that, because of my relationship with Him, I hate the things that He hates. I love the things that He loves. That's not in me, in myself. In me, there is no good thing. But thank God He's working in me both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He gives me the desire, he gives me the ability to do everything he wants me to do. And as we grow in grace and in knowledge of the word of God, as we grow to become more Christ-like, we begin to take on his characteristics, don't we? We ought to be. The fruit of the Spirit ought to be more and more evident in our lives as we take on his character. That's our desire. We want to be more like Jesus. Now, Phinehas was not zealous in his actions because he desired to stop the plague. That wasn't his desire, at least not from, from what we read here. His desire was he was wanting to stop this slap in the face to his God. He was angry because of this man was slapping my God in the face. This man was flaunting sin right in front of my God. And he was zealous for God. That's why he did what he did. Now this is what separates holy zeal, proper zeal, from all other forms of religious fanaticism in the world today. We've got to be zealous for a God who is not only righteous and holy, but we've got to be zealous for a God who loves people. Suffered on a cross and died for people. That's the kind of God we're, we're zealous for. 
God wants to see the sinner delivered. He delights in mercy, not judgment. He would never have suffered on a cross and died if all he wanted to do was judge us. We were locked down already. He had us dead to rights. But instead, he made a way to escape judgment. After this, the plague that went out from the Lord was stayed. And then we read this, starting with verse 10. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and a seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Okay, in this we learn thus that there is more than one way of making an atonement to God. In both cases it is by the manifestation of the righteousness of God, but in different ways. By his holy wrath flaming forth against sin, or through the zeal of a man of God. The weeping of the people was not an atonement. Moses and the elders were weeping before the tabernacle, but the plague continued. The plague was not stayed until Phinehas manifested the righteousness of God as he did. Now, there's a difference here. And I'm not saying we ought not pray. Okay? We always ought to pray. But, at the end of our prayers, we need to do something. We'll talk about that in the next message. <clears throat> we can't just pray and pray and pray and pray and hope God takes care of everything. I mean, that would be nice. I would like that very much. But that's not how it always works. There are times where God will just take care of a situation. Thank God for that. But there are other times God's going to tell me how I can take care of the situation. And then I have to go do that. If after God tells me how to take care of it, I keep praying for him to take care of it, I'm going to get pretty frustrated. God, why aren't you hearing me? Dude, why aren't you hearing me? <laughs> I already answered you. So, and in this case, God had already given the, the, uh, the command. Go out and those that sinned, kill them. Hang them up. <clears throat> well, apparently no one was going after this guy. Maybe because he was a prince in Israel. Maybe Zimri thought that his position would protect him. Maybe they were afraid of, of doing anything to him. I don't know what the situation was. <clears throat> But he went before the congregation with this woman, went into the tent, and it was unanswered. So Phinehas got in there and answered it. And then the plague was stayed. There is most certainly a time for praying and weeping before God. But there also comes a time where we've got to take action. 
In conclusion, so much does God delight in sowing mercy that he is well pleased with those that are instrumental in turning away his wrath. He is pleased with us, his people, when we intercede in behalf of someone else. When through our efforts, through our, our, our weak and feeble efforts, someone comes to the Lord and their entire, entire eternity is changed forever. They were slotted for destruction, but now they have everlasting life. Nothing pleases God more than that. And in our prayers, nothing will please God more than an, an intercessory prayer where we stand in the gap for someone. Nothing delights God more than that. That we could be an instrument for God to deliver his mercy to someone. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, I'm so thankful.